0: We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend.
1: Hello, hello. This is Jasmine Allnut and Cheryl Broderson. And we're here for another episode of Women Worth Knowing. And, and we're still in the Reformers' Wives. We are doing Reformers' Wives. You know, we've done Katie Luther. We've done Idle Calvin. Now we're going to do two more today that are a little lesser known. But for whatever reason, they're the ones we have the most information on. Interesting. So I know, right? Well, they're lesser known to us. In their day, they were definitely
0: noteworthy. You know, in our time and age, sometimes uh, because we're talking about wives of Reformers, they're like... Like, oh, you only see them in the identity as Mm. a wife and, you know, not just as a woman. But these women stand on their own. But the problem is in those times, an unmarried woman was usually a nun Mm -hmm. or persecuted. Um, In fact, (laughs) we talked about Catherine of Siena who was actually beaten by the bishop. And so when you're talking about these different women and what they're going through, the women of most
1: prominence were usually married.
0: Yeah. And so especially when it comes to the reformers. Yes.
1: And they did kind of make a name for themselves in in a unique way. And honestly, folks, it's actually really important that they were helping and supporting their husbands because they did a lot to— That's a ministry. It was such a ministry and a teamwork that would not have happened otherwise. So many of these reformers would not have been as effective as they were if they didn't have their wives there. And so we'll kind of see that come up today. So uh, Catherine Zell is who we're going to talk about first. And she uh, was the wife of Matthew Zell, devoted wife. Matthew Zell was pretty well known in his day. He's not one of the more well-known reformers today, but they had quite a remarkable ministry. So he was a former priest. He became the senior minister of the Reformed Church in Strasbourg. We've talked about Strasbourg already. Remember, that's where the Calvin's were at one point, right? He was actually the most popular preacher in town at the time. Wow! So Calvin was there, yes, but he was preaching in French, and Matthew Zell was preaching in German, and then there were several other reformers as well. There was Wolfgang Capito, Martin Bucer. There were so many people that were part of the Strasbourg branch of the Reformation. Actually, Martin Bucer is the one who really made Strasbourg influential around Europe. A lot of people don't know that, but anyway. (laughs) So I was reading this uh, one historian who I actually disagree with a lot? Well, often, I'll say, but sometimes she makes really good points. Her name is Ruth Tucker. And <laughs> sometimes she has a little gem in there. And she said, and this I was like, that's actually really true. Sometimes when a new movement begins in church history, we find women being given these remarkable opportunities that were not afforded to them previously, because everything's kind of in chaos and upheaval. It's just a new situation and it's an opportunity for women to maybe do a lot more, be more involved, speak out more than they previously would have been. And so, you know, because it's all fresh, it's all new, wide open. And then once the movement gets established and goes more mainstream, sometimes restrictions are then placed on the next generations. And that's kind of what happened actually during the Reformation, which makes sense because a lot of women took up the cause of reform through speaking, writing. We're going to talk about other ones later who were involved in that kind of aspect as well in that first generation or two. But then, of course, it kind of petered out later. And so Catherine Zell was actually one of those women. As things are starting out, it's all fresh and new. And she really had an opportunity and a platform to speak. And so She was born Catherine Schutz. She was from a respectable family in Strasbourg, very articulate, very vocal, as we will see. And she had a brilliant mind for scripture uh, and a very strong personality. All of that, which, you know, was going to assert itself. (laughs) That's so
0: important, though. She was educated. I mean, that she could read, she could write, Mm -hmm. and she could exercise her mind. And that is um, that's something that really came more for women during the Reformation is the education of women.
1: Yes, that was really promoted. I mean, Mm -hmm. Luther, Bucer, all these guys really promoted education schools. The first public schools in Germany were founded out of the Reformation. So, yeah, you're right. That's a big thing here. So uh, Ruth Tucker says of Catherine Zell, perhaps more than any Christian woman before her, Catherine was a defender of women's roles in ministry and a defender of what she was convinced were true Christian precepts. And again, she based what she said on the word of God. So she wasn't just pulling this out of her ear. I mean, this was stuff that she had really become convinced of on a lot of levels, not just... Uh, in terms of women's roles in ministry, but other things as well. She spoke a lot on the authority of scripture. Sola Scriptura, Luther's, you know, motto, that was something that she really took to heart and really advocated for. Also, religious freedom. And that was very edgy, even during the Reformation. We've already talked about that a little bit when we looked at the Anabaptists. I'll talk about that again in a second. So, Catherine and Matthew got married December of 1524 or 1525. Different books say different years, which is kind of funny. Maybe it was <laughs> like at 12 o'clock or like 1155
0: yeah, to 12 o'clock on December 31st to January 1st. So, maybe,
1: yes, exactly. That's what whoever it wrote it down, yeah. they didn't know. What do like, I it was here? a late night wedding. What yeah. can we say? <laughs> So uh, Matthew was actually 20 years older than Catherine, so he's in his late 40s, but that wasn't the scandalous part. You know, here she is, you know, in her early 20s marrying this older man. That wasn't a big deal back then. It was the fact that he was still a Catholic priest at the time. That was the big deal. My goodness. And of course, we know clerical marriage, very taboo. We talked about, like, the monks and the nuns with the Luthers and all of that, and for a priest to just to get married, that was just shocking. And so Matthew was officially excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and he actually refused to comment on this. He's like, okay, whatever. God will take care of it. He'll, you know, I'll just move on. But Catherine— Do you think he
0: was making a statement to the Catholic Church mm, like that priest should marry? Because mm -hmm. I remember Martin Luther was really upset as he began to read the scriptures that the Catholic Church required celibacy. Yeah, totally, because
1: that's not in the Bible. That's right. So exactly. Oh, yeah. No, he was making a statement. But he—what I gather from reading about these guys, he was uh, more chill. And he was more the strong silent type. He wasn't one yeah. to be assertive. But like, you know, I'm thinking about this too, because the word reformed,
0: they didn't expect to start another movement. They just hoped to reform exactly. the Catholic Church. Exactly. So it didn't start out as a rebellion. They just wanted to reform. Like, mm-hmm. let's get back to the basics. Yes. The
1: term yeah, the term, so, yeah, the term mm-hmm. Protestant wasn't um, coined until 1529 right. at the church council years later. So that's a really important point. And so he's like, hey, why can't we just, you know, mm-hmm. reform in this area? So even though he didn't want to talk about it, Catherine did. (laughs) And so she publicly defended their marriage with uh, actually a very sound biblical defense. And this was actually the first book or, I guess, pamphlet that she wrote. Uh, She also argued—this is great—she argued it was better to have a priest who was faithful to his wife than a supposedly, quote-unquote, celibate priest who was promiscuous because— That's how so many of the priests were back then. Even the monks. Yes, and the monks, they are all having mistresses. I mean, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. There was a Cardinal Beaton up in Scotland in St. Andrews, the Archbishop of St. Andrews. He had uh, children with 16 different women. I mean, these guys were just pervy and (laughs) so she's not sorry not all of them but there was a lot of that kind of corruption in the medieval church so she had a point and so she said why shouldn't the church support a priest who marries and is faithful to his wife everyone knows priests certainly don't practice celibacy is it because the bishops are pocketing the monetary fines they collect from priests who live with their mistresses How many priests are sneaking around seducing women? Their sexual sins are hardly a secret. So she was straight up, but she was just saying what everybody already knew. And she really hit a nerve there because this was a sad, it was a tragic, but a true indictment against the corruption in the church. Again, there were obviously monks and priests that were godly, that were set apart to the Lord and wanted to sincerely serve God. But there was also a lot of corruption here. And so She had actually a leg to stand on here with this argument. It was one of the many reasons why the Reformation happened was a lot of this corruption and lack of obviously biblical understanding. (laughs) So Catherine continued as an author and a hymn writer. After her marriage, she wrote a tract for women in 1534. She published a collection of her own hymns. And apparently she took the large standard hymnal that was used in the churches and she broke it into smaller sections and edited everything down. So that um, common people could afford to buy them. It was almost like tracts, like so that these people could learn, have a little songbook and learn songs about the Lord. And the reason the songs were so important, because a lot of the
0: population, again, was illiterate. And these Mm -hmm. songs had doctrine. Yes. And they were a way for the people to know the scripture and to know doctrine. Excellent. Exactly. That's a great
1: point. So as you can probably tell, Catherine was very outspoken, (laughs) very strong. She would even speak boldly to other reformers when she felt like it was warranted. And there were a few cases where she actually, you know, was, uh, I think, effective in dealing with them. For instance, uh, she urged Luther to be more unified with the Swiss Protestant leaders, which was something he really struggled to do. In fact, I'm not going to get into all of that can of worms. But there was a, a council, a meeting between the Swiss and German reform movements and They kind of went their separate ways and it went kind of ugly, but she was really grieved by that and encouraged Luther, you know, try to find a point of unity here with these guys. Also, remember Calvin had a bad temper, right? And at one point he threw a fit and Catherine was the only one who could come in and calm him down. So, you know, some of these girls, they would just jump in. Calvin had a lot of, actually, there were some other, we'll talk about them eventually, these French women reformers that really encouraged him in his ministry and stuff. And so they found their place of influence. So Catherine uh, also defended the Anabaptists against persecution at the hands of the other reformers and really called them out for their you know, harsh demeanor and, and brutality in some instances. Uh, very accurately, she said this. I mean, she studied what they taught and what they believed, and she said, hey— They accept Christ in all of the essentials we do, but they're pursued as by a hunter with dogs chasing wild boars. Like, this is so inappropriate. They believe the same thing we do. And then she went on and said, anyone who acknowledges Christ as the true son of God and the sole savior of mankind is welcome at my board. I mean, she was so right on. And I love that about her. She was able to get away from all of the secondary issues that the reformers were getting hung up on and get to the the core, the heart. And she realized, you know, the Anabaptists love the word of God and they're living by the word of God as much as we are. So, you know, (laughs) let's cut them some slack here. And so one biographer said she made a strong case for religious liberty long before the call for toleration in the 17th century enlightenment, arguing that a government had no right to punish individuals for matters of conscience. In fact, she wrote in a letter and said, governments should not force and govern belief, which is a matter of the heart and conscience, not for temporal authorities. Again, very much ahead of her time. I mean, this was actually almost like what the Anabaptists were teaching. Like, hey, the church and state shouldn't be so intertwined and there shouldn't be this coercion. Like you have to believe what I say and I'm gonna send the state authorities on you if you don't. I mean, it was very remarkable what she was saying here. Again, coming out of the Middle Ages, and that's important to understand with the reformers, understand them in their context. Cheryl's talked about this a lot too, like understand where they're coming from here. The reformers were about as revolutionary as they could be for the time they were in. Many of them were just kind of coming out of this very medieval mentality of the church state union, which we've mentioned in other podcasts. And that was really hard to shake. So we have to understand them in their context, but also understand that people like Catherine could see a little bit further and a little bit more clearly what the heart of Jesus would be, Probably in this situation, which is just amazing. Yes, it really is. So this was a, you know, a very radical position she was taking. And I think only um, Martin Bucer, which is why he's my favorite, and a couple others really understood this position towards the Anabaptists and really were willing to hear them out and show compassion and listen to what they had to say. Again, a lot of the other guys just got so dogmatic and harsh. So not surprisingly, Catherine also took part in theological discussions and held her own with the theologians and ministers who came through their home. Um, And I love Matthew. I think he just was proud of his wife. He just thought she was awesome. She wrote, Ever since I was 10 years old, I have been a student and sort of church mother, much given to attending sermons. I have loved and frequented the company of learned men, and I have conversed much with them about the kingdom of God. Now, Bucer did actually say at one point, and remember, these guys are all in Strasbourg together, and sometimes, you know, they could rub each other the wrong way. He did mention in a letter once that Catherine was a trifle imperious, so she could get a little over the top, but he also said she was as God-fearing and courageous as a hero. So he saw in her something almost heroic in the Way that she defended the faith. So Catherine and Matthew, they actually had a very warm and fun-loving marriage. uh They just joked around a lot together. And I, like I said, I think he must have been pretty chill because he never really tried to rope her in, even though she was so outspoken. He just appreciated her for who she was and loved her. And and she was also known for showing hospitality. So kind of oh, like, yeah. oh yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, she had a lot of other qualities as well that yeah, really. But were I'm thinking blessing.
0: about that. Must have been a must. For Definitely. a reformer's wife in At those times, time, yeah. because their husbands were discipling people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. So exactly. You're going
1: to get to that. Oh yeah, oh Sorry. yeah. Um, but she claimed they never had uh, an unpleasant 15 minutes with each other. Wow. And she said they were. I know. Who knows if that's really true? But she just loved him so. Yes. <laughs> the, the Luther's were more honest. Or that might be all, <laughs> that might be one sided. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On her side. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, everything's fine. What are you talking about? Yes. Uh, we're doing just fine, honey. That's great. Yes. Yeah, nudge. She said they were of one mind and soul. What bound us together was not silver and gold. Both of us possessed a higher thing because Christ was the mark before our eyes. And they really were a great ministry team. Um, in fact, at their wedding, Matthew commissioned her to be a mother to the poor and refugees. So oh, that ties you right in with what you were saying. Exactly. That's exactly what she did. And she really did take that calling to heart. And wanted to be a team player. Like, we'll get into that, too, a little bit, because she wasn't quite as, like, hardcore as you might think. So... Uh, she was a very active woman in Strasbourg. She helped and housed refugees, homeless people, especially widows and orphans that were wow. victims of the 1525 Peasant War. That peasant war you talked about that Luther was really grieved about, that created so much social chaos. All these people that were just homeless and you know poor, didn't have anything. Uh, she aided the needy in prison. She risked her life to minister to plague victims, not to mention um, helping people suffering with leprosy and syphilis, interestingly enough. Which would have enough. been- um, Very like, whoa.
0: <laughs> yes, that would have been almost controversial all yes. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: absolutely. Syphilis for sure. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if they knew yet exactly what caused syphilis You're at right, that time, right, but right. yes, uh, these were very controversial actions. Definitely um, the leprosy and the syphilis mm, both
0: mm. because they were catching. And so a lot yes. of people uh, wanted to quarantine them and stay away from them. So this is like, this is so loving.
1: So loving. So exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. She even took in uh, reformers that were seeking refuge at different times. Sometimes Calvin would stay with them. Bucer, different ones would just... Come to them when they were you know going through uh, persecution so when her husband died in 1548 she was devastated um Mm. somehow though not probably typical of her she managed to rally and give the funeral message wow (laughs) i know she was quite a gal but they had been such a team and this is important to know about her they were such a team that she felt that she had to dispel some of the rumors out there that she was going to try to take over his pulpit Mm. and become the pastor um she said I am not usurping the office of preacher or apostle I am like the dear Mary Magdalene who with no thought of being an apostle came to tell the disciples that she had encountered the risen lord mm, I love that So she just wanted to tell people about Jesus just continue to serve in whatever capacity the lord put before her I love that So Even after Matthew's death, she continued on serving the cause of the Reformation Uh, in everything from speaking to writing, continued hospitality. She actually said, I've been allowed to keep the parsonage, which belongs to the parish, and I take in anyone who comes. It is Mm. always full. So um, Catherine certainly had her critics, as you can imagine, but she could hold her own. Uh, There was a family friend named Ludwig Rabus, and he had stayed with them, actually lived with them for a time, uh, but she didn't agree with all of his views. And he got all offended by her and decided to, I don't know, start accusing her of different things. And he came out and said she was disturbing the peace of the church. And so in response, she said, a disturber of the peace, am I? Yes, indeed, of my own peace, I have visited the plague-infested and carried out the dead. I've visited those in prison under sentence of death. Often for three days and three nights, I've neither eaten nor slept. Is this disturbing, the peace of the church? Like, so she would just say, hey, here's my... (laughs) Very My credentials here. Yes, she came right back at him. And it's ironic because um, oh, I was reading somewhere that when Robis' wife died, the grieving husband came to Catherine and asked her to be part of the service, of the funeral service. Interesting. So I know in the end. You, you got know, over it. Yeah, apparently. Yep, they worked through their issues. So. Uh, Catherine served the Lord as a widow for 14 years until she died in 1562 at the age of 65. Um, Ulrich Wingley praised Catherine, saying she combined the graces of both Mary and Martha. And it's sweet because Catherine and Matthew had two children who died in infancy, so they never actually got a chance to raise their own children. Catherine never was a mother in that sense, but she really did become known as the church mother of the Reformation on many levels. Several authors talk about her as kind of a church mother. So very, very sweet. Um, Rebecca Van Dudeward put it this way. She said, uh, Catherine was a female theologian in the best sense. Historians today call her a lay reformer, but she only did what every Christian should. She used her gifts for gospel change in her own sphere in whatever way possible. So I love that. She just, you know, she was just a Christian. She just lived and did whatever the Lord put in front of her to do. So she was a real remarkable gal.
0: Now, I also read that, you know, how you said that she worked with people that didn't have the same standard belief of the reformers, like the Anabaptists, like Hoffman and Mm Hochfurt, to distribute relief to the refugees. She was like, well, let's just work together in this to mm-hmm. help the refugees, love which, it. I mean, that was really um, progressive thinking for Back that then, day. yes. You know, very. And, like, let's just, we all love Jesus. But I was mm-hmm. also thinking, too, for an educated woman in that time who really knew the Lord, it could be so frustrating. I mean, if you want to talk about deep theological issues, and most of the women don't read, or they're too mm-hmm. busy, maybe even with all their children, Yeah, yeah, to yeah. read or to talk, and you can understand why she talked to these uh, other reformers. Mm-hmm. Because when you're burning with those deep things in, of Jesus, you'll talk to anybody, yeah. probably especially after her beloved husband died.
1: Yes. Yeah. She needed an outlet. That's a really good mm-hmm. way to put it. And so, I mean, yeah, she was just very unique that way. So I love Catherine Zell for that. You know, like, you know, I Calvin was more, you know, like I said, the homemaker and helping the refugees, the last gal we're going to talk about now as well. They had that kind of aspect to them, which was also very valuable. But Catherine Zell was just kind of a unique little spark plug there who had that— well, especially Passion with the more. prolific writing. Yes. I think she's
0: the only reformer's wife I know yeah, of. Yeah. That, that was a writer? That was a writer. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And a prolific writer. And then the songs, too. Did you ever talk about an instrument she played? Oh, no. I haven't heard about like, that Like, I didn't know if she played a harpsichord or, sang, or a maybe, you know, piano. Huh? Did she sing? Okay. So, we only have one more gal yes. to do
1: <laughs> Anna Bollinger. Uh, so she was the wife of Heinrich Bollinger, who was uh, Ulrich Zwingli's disciple. He was uh, there You go. the guy who— There we go. All these people are all interconnected. You're going to have to go back and re-listen to these episodes to try to put the threads together here, folks. So Ulrich Zwingli um, had been the pastor, as we know, of Zurich, right? Remember I said he died in a battle with the Catholics, tragically, in 1531. So he died before his time— and so Heinrich Bollinger was the man who stepped in and took over the church at that time. So his wife, Anna, was born Anna Adlischweiler, quite a mouthful, those German names. She and her mom uh, went into a convent in Zurich together after her father died because Anna was still pretty young and her mother was ill. So they end up going into this convent. Uh, and she was born somewhere around 1504. We're not exactly sure with some of these gals. Um, they didn't have good records of their births necessarily at that time. So Anna eventually became a nun, and uh, you know she's in a convent. Why not? I guess I was will make the most of my time here. And then she stayed with her mom, uh, continued to stay with her as her caretaker because her mom never really recovered. She was always always a pretty ill woman. So in 1522, Zwingli came and preached at the convent, and Anna got saved through his teaching. Um, a few years later, you know, Bullinger was reforming a monastery at the time, but he took a leave of absence. This was in 1527, so about five years later, to go and study under Zwingli in Zurich. And there they went and visited the you know convent where Anna was, and, and that's when he met her and he immediately fell in love with her and wrote a letter to propose to her and this is considered one historian said the oldest existing love letter from a reformer so that's kind of Aww. cute i know yeah. very cute anna um accepted his proposal and i love i don't have the i don't have a copy of the proposal but it was not quite like calvin's but it had all those dry like those dry theological points on why we should get married kind of a thing <laughs> but he also just was smitten oh romantic so, oh those romantic reformers that's luther right. was probably the spiciest so um, she accepted. And that's his, pretty sad. I know. I know right? <laughs> <laughs> accepted his proposal, but wouldn't marry him as long as her mom was still alive and needed wow. care. And a lot of women did that back then. They just felt kind of, you know, that was my obligation to take care of my parents. And then when they pass, then I'll be free to think of the next thing. So there was also the fact that her mom didn't really approve of the marriage. I don't know why. Maybe because my daughter's a nun. She can't do that. I don't know. Or just the poverty and the danger, maybe. There could be that, too. Mm -hmm. This is a reformer. Mm -hmm. That might be a bad move. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Practically speaking. so. Mm Uh, But her mom passed a couple years later in 1529, and then Heinrich and Anna were married. And they had a great marriage. Um, They had a happy family with 11 happy children, six boys and five girls. And that's a miracle back then. I mean, that all those kids would even survive, honestly, in those days. Um, but historians have talked about their happy Christian home. That's what the Bollingers were known for. And they really became the model of a Christian Protestant or reformer family. And I thought it was actually kind of neat, too, because you see that the kids had such a—I don't know. They really must have loved their upbringing because all of their sons became Protestant ministers. Wow. And so that is quite a testimony. And how many sons again? Quite a testament. They had six sons. Six sons. So that's became, really remarkable. Yeah, that is. Like the Luthers, the Bullingers opened their home to all sorts of people. I mean, actually, really, all of the reformers' families, right? Uh, refugees, students— Fellow reformers, all kinds of people would come through their home. Calvin, Farrell, Bucer, Capito, all these different guys at one point or another stayed with the Bollingers, members of the congregation when they were struggling. Uh, When Zwingli died, right, in that battle, remember Mrs. Zwingli, the weeping mother of the Reformation, she had seven children. So she's a widow with seven little kids. The Bollingers took in uh, Mrs. Zwingli and all of the kids uh, into their home. I mean, just really, really a house of ministry. And that wasn't just because of Bollinger. You know, a lot of times we read about the guys because they were the ones that were doing all the writing and that were most out there in the public eye. And he was a very generous, kind man, but Anna really had a gift of hospitality and service. And it's actually kind of miraculous how she was able to take care of all of these people on Heinrich's minister's salary. It's not like he was raking in the big bucks here. I mean, they had a pretty small salary. And at times they also had over 20 people living with them. And so, I mean, this really is a miraculous provision if you stop and think about it. It reminds me of either a loaves and fishes kind of a moment (laughs) or— Or like the widow, right, that helped Elijah and the oil in the jar just kept replenishing. I mean, honestly, they must have had so many stories of God's miraculous provision for them. So that warm-hearted love and generosity of Heinrich and Anna as the new pastor and wife settling in after Zwingli died, that really set an important tone for the church in Zurich. And the whole city became a haven for all kinds of people across Europe. And it's interesting, you know, a lot of times that does happen, that a congregation and a community can take on the personality of the pastor and his mm-hmm. family. And so they were a really good example to the rest of the flock. And so lots of refugees came in fact. This is cool. Many English Protestants fled to Zurich during the reign of Queen Bloody Mary. We call her Bloody, right? Mary, right, right. right during right, right. You know, during her reign, Mary the 1st in right, England. Right. And so then later, after Mary died and her sister Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth and came to the throne, she actually wrote to the Bollingers. Queen Elizabeth wrote to the Bollingers and thanked them for um, housing all of these English refugees and for their kindness. Wow. So that was the kind of— That's a letter you keep. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Seriously. Frank. Uh, exactly. That is interesting. I know. Yes. So it's you know, it's worth pointing out, I think here too, and this is probably maybe for some of our listeners to keep in mind, Ministry from the home is really important, and it really became a key element in the spread of Reformation ideals. You know, again, we've talked about with that with the Luthers. They specifically hosted theologians and students who took Luther's ideas and ran with them all over Europe. In fact, there was a a popular book of dinner table theological discussions called Table Talks that was printed and circulated out of all the conversations Luther had with his students. And that just was a really effective way of, you know, spreading the Reformation. And Anna Bollinger's hospitality served a very similar purpose. And that was a big reason why so many of their guests went home and spread Reformation views, some of what Bollinger had taught, And they brought it over to their native lands, even back up to England, you know, influenced even Queen Elizabeth was touched by their example. And so uh, one biographer said Anna ended up ministering far beyond the place she lived by loving all of Christ's diverse people. So never underestimate ministry in the home because people are often most impacted and most open when they see genuine care and concern for their lives. Because when we That's act right. in love, it makes people pay attention to what we have to say. And, and also
0: there's something about just having a meal together too, because yeah. food is bonding. Yes. And absolutely. So when you eat together and you sit, you kind of tend to open up your heart a little bit more too. That's a great point. which I think conversations at that dinner table, can you imagine? Mm. And even the guests that would be listening to these reformers talk and, you know, about how deep the love of God is because this is really what the reformers wanted everyone to know: is that um, Jesus paid it all. Yes, that that His blood was sufficient. Because the Catholic Church was demanding at that time uh, that people pay penance; that the blood of Jesus Christ was not, was enough. not enough. You had to mm. pay these fines to the Catholic Church and do sometimes these crazy like Hulker a Medjurum. trip to yeah. Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, bring back a sacred relic Mm -hmm. or, you know, go up the stairs of the basilica on your knees. Mm -hmm. I mean, just these crazy penance. And when the reformers come and say, no, no, Jesus forgave everything, Mm -hmm. and then they would talk about it from Scripture. Can you imagine being at that table? Oh, my gosh. I know.
1: Some of these conversations. That's right. Just amazing.
0: And these women facilitated it.
1: They did. They played a really important role. You might even remember, I can connect this even back to Edith and uh, Francis Schaefer and, mm-hmm. you know, the, their home at Labrie. Remember what Edith did right. with all of those people that came into their home to create that environment where the Lord could really minister. Have we talked about Edith? I, oh, sorry. That was with my mom. <laughs> It's like, oh, no, you're out of town. I'm going to have to listen to that one. Yeah. So, um, certainly, Anna and Heinrich's hospitality demonstrated how real their faith and convictions were in every aspect of their lives. People could see their whole life. And it really impacted so many across Europe. In fact, uh, across the continent, Anna became known as the Zurich Mother. They called her that. They would just but talk about are. her. Oh, the Zurich Mother. This is the Zurich just one. This is such a, yeah, exactly. I mean, Not what the a. Strasbourg the Strasbourg one. one was Catherine, yeah. Yes. So um, just I love the testimony and the influence there. So Heinrich uh, sadly, contracted the plague in 1564, mm. but as Anna was nursing him back to health, she contracted the disease and died. He actually survived, but she died. So very tragic. Not surprisingly, one of Bollinger's best-selling works was called "Christian Matrimony." And he and Anna, I mean, really modeled that in such a beautiful way. And so. I love these Reformation wives, and I just thought they were women worth knowing that we should talk about. Oh, definitely.
0: (laughs) These are women worth knowing. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. We hope that you're enjoying it as much as We are enjoying talking about it, (laughs) and we hope that you'll join us next week. Until then, if you have a woman worth knowing, maybe even a personal testimony, a mom, a sister, an aunt, a cousin, a neighbor, somebody you just (laughs) met or somebody you read about, or just that you were inspired by someone, will you please let us know? We might even just read your letter on
1: this podcast. So we would love to hear from you, and you can write us at... WWK at cccm.com. That's our email address. Or you can find us on the women.cccm.com website or uh, Cheryl's website, graciouswords.com. There's a link there.
0: And please like us on whatever venue that you listen to us on. Please do. And until next week, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk@cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed, and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Brodersen and Jasmine Allnut.